This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 150th edition of the program. Today is July 6th, and this episode is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Anon Egberier, Christopher Butterworth, Danielle Starr, Eric Antical, Eric Castro, Jason Borchers, John Brock, Kathy Lee, Kenneth Schneider, Mitchell Clark, and Tyler Rodenberg. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, first, we'll talk about attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from both establishment Democrats who think she's too far left and also from Republicans who are now trying to slander her as a cuckoo communist. But I'll tell you who the real radicals are in this situation. It's certainly not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Additionally, while Democrats should be gearing up for the fight of their lives to stop Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee at all costs, well, we're already predictably seeing signs that some of them want to retreat. We'll talk about that, and on the subject of spineless Democrats, DNC Chairman Tom Perez refuses to say that he supports Medicare for All after declaring multiple times that he thinks healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Also in the program, Bernie Sanders is now warming up to the idea of abolishing ICE and other Democrats like Kirsten Gillibrand also want to abolish ICE, otherwise known as American Gestapo. So we'll talk about that development. And Republicans are still getting confronted by citizens in restaurants, and it's awesome. So I will show you clips from what's been happening around the country this week. And speaking of Republicans, I'll talk about Trump's gratuitous lies, one in particular that might be the most shameless yet. Also, we'll talk about a push for ranked choice voting in Massachusetts, and I'll tell you what we can all do to save net neutrality in California. So that's on the agenda for today's show. Enjoy. So it's now been a little more than a week since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's stunning victory in the 14th Congressional District of New York, and we're seeing a lot of responses from people across the country. Essentially, at this point, everyone knows her name and knows who she is. And when you look at the response from members of the Democratic Party establishment, well, really what they're saying about this it's interesting, albeit unsurprising, because basically what they're trying to do is desperately downplay her victory. It has nothing to do with the fact that she ran an unapologetically progressive campaign. It has nothing to do with the fact that she campaigned her ass off. And really, she essentially won because of her gender. Now, in fact, this is what one prominent Democratic Party think tank is saying. Now, as The Intercept's Lee Fang reports, Matt Bennett, co-founder of Third Way, a business-friendly Democratic think tank governed by a Council of Finance Industry Executives told Axios that Crowley lost because of his gender and the particular dynamics of the district. Ocasio-Cortez's victory had more to do with the nature of her very blue district than it does with national politics, Bennett said. So in other words, it has nothing to do with her progressive message. It has nothing to do with her flawless campaign and everything to do with the fact that, well, she, she ran in this district and uh, she was a woman. 
Now, why are they trying to downplay her victory here? Well, it's easy. If they can downplay this victory and make it seem as if it's an anomaly, then really that doesn't have any broader implications for them. It doesn't suggest that the party at large should in fact move to the left and adopt some of these policies that Ocasio-Cortez is talking about. Now, it's one thing if elitist Democratic Party think tanks say things like this, but so long as leaders within the Democratic Party don't see that as the main takeaway, that it was just demographics and, you know, this one was random, then we'll be in good shape. Unfortunately, that's not what they're saying. So DNC Chairman Tom Perez was asked about her victory, and uh, this is what he had to say. She ran a fantastic campaign. And I think at the end of 2018, when you see remarkable results uh, for Democrats across the country, the role of women leading the charge is going to be a big part of the, the story of 2018. She, she was a firebrand. She talked about the issues that mattered most in their districts. And uh, I have great respect for Joe Crowley as well. He was one of the original supporters of uh, you know, Medicare for All among the leadership of the Democratic Party. And, uh, and, and she came forward in a remarkable fashion. And, and a, another so, example of the energy we see across America. Uh, you know, this is, uh, I, I think this is an exciting time uh, for for the movement and we, we see this all over the country let's talk about that energy and what it means for the party as a whole uh, chairman Perez because I'm wondering mm -hmm. if this victory by Ocasio-Cortez signals to you a frustration with where Democratic leadership is right now whether this is a sign coming from progressives coming from some Democrats that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer needs to step aside and let in some some new blood well, I, you know, time will tell uh, what, what happens in that front. But what, what I think we've seen in elections across the country are candidates who won by focusing on the issues that were keeping their constituents up at night. Uh, Alexandria focused on so many issues that were front and center in her very diverse community. You know, a few months back, Connor Lamb was focusing on uh, you know, the right to form a union, the, the uh, pension security, uh, things of that nature. And, and uh, you know, he was prescient in the sense that uh, the Supreme Court this morning is making it harder for public sector labor unions to organize. And so what I'm seeing in the candidates that we've been, you know, out there uh, uh, working with and, and, and observing is that uh, they're, they're really focused like a laser on how to improve the lives of people. They want to make sure that they're making lives better for folks. Now, admittedly, what he said wasn't as egregious as what the so-called think tank said, the third way think tank that we talked about earlier. But I mean, understand that in talking about her gender here, there's this underlying implication that really she won because of the excitement of women across the country getting into politics. And sure, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that's partially a reason why she was victorious, because a lot of us want to see women succeed, of course. Now, to Tom Perez's credit, he did actually suggest that policies were also what excited voters, but it was really interesting because notice how as he talked about her policies, he wouldn't name a single policy from her, and instead of talking about her specific policy proposals, what did he do? He then pivoted to Connor Lamb and discussed his more centrist-friendly policies, like the right to form a union and pension security. So, I mean, there's been both subtle and overt implications that really it wasn't because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is offering this bold progressive platform. It's because of her gender. And certainly, even though Tom Perez didn't, um, he didn't base her entire win also off of gender, it certainly was heavily implied that, you know, she was victorious because she was a woman. Now, again, that's problematic because 
they're saying this. They're saying that really this is an anomaly and it has nothing to do with their policy positions because they don't want to move left. But the reason why Ocasio-Cortez won, as she puts it, is that she says, some folks are saying I won for demographic reasons. First of all, that's false. We won with voters of all kinds. Second, here's my first pair of campaign shoes. I knocked on doors until rainwater came through my soles. Respect the hustle. We won because we outworked the competition. Period. And that's what it comes down to. What Democrats need to take away from this is, one, you've got to adopt bold, progressive policy positions, and two, every single campaign they run should be a get-out-the-vote campaign. That's exactly what Alexandria did. She went after non-voters, and that, for Democrats, that's completely unfathomable. It's a really unorthodox way to run your campaign because they just go after people who are more likely to vote. But what Alexandria did is she turned out people who didn't usually vote, and she won. And not only did she just win, she kicked Joe Crowley's ass. So, of course, the takeaway is that if other Democrats want to be successful... In any district, you've got to get out the vote and you've got to actually come with a bold, progressive message. Now, Minority Speaker Nancy Pelosi was also asked about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And really, she was asked whether or not there's any takeaways from this race, you know, if they can learn anything in the broader Democratic Party and whether or not the party itself should adopt a bold platform like Alexandria's. And her answer pretty much was no. Dude, listen to that end. If the Democratic Party is increasingly younger, more female, more diverse, more progressive, should the Democratic House leadership look that way? Well, I'm female, I'm progressive, I'm a <laughs> and the rest of them. What's your problem? <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Democratic voters in New York last night seem to express a problem. Yeah, they did. They made a choice in one district. So let's not get yourself carried away as an expert on demographics and the rest of that within the caucus or outside the caucus. We are, um, again, we have an array of uh, genders, generations, geography, and, and the rest, opinion in our caucus, and we're very proud of that. The fact that in a very progressive district in New York, uh, it went more progressive uh, than, well, Joe Crowley is a progressive, but more to the left than Joe Crowley is about that district. It is not uh, to be uh, viewed as something that stands for everything else. Now, I love how she couldn't even say that she's a progressive with a straight face. I'm progressive. I'm a <laughs> and the rest of them. Now, if you care about defeating Republicans, then that clip should be really unsettling. She is downplaying the victory of a 28-year-old who beat a 10-term incumbent who outraised her by, what, a 17-to-1 margin? How can you downplay that victory? This was an unprecedented victory here. She took $0 in corporate money. So, I mean, if you're wondering why Democrats were wiped out at all levels of government, if you're wondering why they lost a thousand seats, more than a thousand seats in state legislatures across the country. That's why, because of that thinking right there from so-called leaders like Nancy Pelosi. But I mean, it gets worse because this is what she also had to say. Republicans say that one of the things this defeat shows is that democratic socialism is ascendant in your party. Are they right about that? No, they're not. They're, it's ascendant in that district, perhaps. Uh, but uh, 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 I don't 
accept any characterization of our party presented by the Republicans. So let me reject that right now. Right, Mr. Conrad? <laughs> you can join in any time. Uh, our party is a big tent. Uh, our districts are very different one from the other. As I said, I am viewed, and uh, they spend tens of millions of dollars uh, uh, promoting, uh, characterizing me or caricaturizing me as this left-wing person, where in my district they call me a corporate pawn uh, because my district is so progressive. No, I don't know about you guys, but I can't possibly figure out why anyone would have the audacity to call someone like Nancy Pelosi of all people a corporate pawn. I mean, what would possess anyone to lob such a ridiculous insult at her when she's been nothing but an unapologetic principled progressive? I mean, she's not against Medicare for all because she's taking money from the health insurance industry, right? Of course not. It's because she thinks that her plan of a public option, maybe a public option, is just more progressive. <laughs> I mean, look, that's just embarrassing right there. Not only what she said prior to her calling herself a corporate pawn, but I mean, she's basically acknowledging inadvertently so that she's not representing her district because people in her district are so progressive that they call her a corporate pawn. Well, if they don't like you, Nancy, maybe you should resign. You're clearly hurting the party. I mean, that's that's objective. That's not me saying that. You just have to look at the facts. Under your leadership, you guys have been wiped out. So maybe it's time to step aside. But she's not stepping aside, and she's doing what we predicted Democrats would do. Downplay her victory, chalk it up to demographics, say socialism isn't ascended in the party, and say that this is just, you know, this is an anomaly, we shouldn't move left. And even former progressives, like Tammy Duckworth, who knows, or at least did know, how important being progressive was to win elections, decided to downplay Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory. There were obviously a lot of shockwaves in the Democratic Party uh, Tuesday night. Uh, when 28-year-old Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. defeated the fourth-ranking Democrat in the House, uh, Joe Crowley, is a platform of Medicare for all, federal jobs guarantee, free college tuition. Uh, is this the future of the Democratic Party? I think it's the future of the party in the Bronx, <laughs> where she is. Uh, I think that uh, we as uh, legislators need to listen to our constituency and get out there. I think what she did was she did the hard work. She pounded the pavement and she was out there talking to every one of her constituents, and I think that was the difference. She turned out her voters and, and reflected the needs of her district. Are you concerned at all that your party is going too far to the left to either win in the midterms or win back the White House? Well, I think that uh, you can't win the White House without the Midwest, and I don't think that you can uh, go too far to the left and still win the Midwest coming from a Midwestern state. I think you need to be able to talk to the industrial Midwest. You need to listen to the people there um, and in order to win an election nationwide. I guess I can give Tammy Duckworth some credit here because she's not just chalking up Alexandria's victory to demographics, but still, she's she's promoting this false idea that Democrats can't go too far to the left in the Midwest because you know she's from a Midwest state, and if you wanna if you wanna win over the Midwest, then you just can't go too far left. We don't ever talk about how far right Republicans go, notice how we're only talking about how far left the Democratic Party is going. When the Overton window is shifted so far to the right, yet we only talk about how too left Democrats are, 
you know that American political discourse is completely messed up right now. But look, I I'm not going to respond to Tammy Duckworth because I think that Alexandria had the perfect response. She states, with respect to the senator, strong, clear advocacy for working class Americans isn't just for the Bronx. Senator Sanders won Michigan, Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, Wisconsin, and Indiana. We then lost several of those states in the general. What's the plan to prevent a repeat? They don't have a plan. They think that they can just keep running these centrist candidates and win over members of the Republican Party and moderate voters. But you've learned time and again, or you should have learned anyways, that that's a strategy that doesn't make you electorally successful. Do what she did. Get out the vote. Go after non-voters, excite your own base, and you might actually win. It doesn't mean that you're going to win 100% of races, but would it improve their chances? Absolutely. Think about this. You never hear Republicans talking about running candidates too far to the right in blue states. I mean, that would be blasphemy to even say something like that, even though the Republican Party has become demonstrably more radicalized over the past 25 years, yet Democrats, progressive Democrats in particular, who are running on policies supported by a majority of Americans, well, they get chastised by members of their own party for being too progressive when Republicans, they don't even question it. They run far right wingers in blue states. I mean, look at the policies. Americans, by and large, are progressive. And look, even if, if Democrats are really worried about losing and going too far left and they really want to play it safe, here's a couple of policies that are polling nearly at 60%, if not more than 60%. Medicare for all, legalizing marijuana, a federal jobs guarantee, tuition-free public colleges and universities. Just go with those four policies that have almost 60%, if not more. And you'll win. You could even play it safe that way and still be pretty progressive. But they don't want to do that. They're cowards. And why? Well, of course, it's because their donors don't want them to become more progressive. So, I mean, so long as the Overton window is so far to the right in this country, don't you dare talk to me about someone being too far left, Tammy Duckworth or Tom Perez or Nancy Pelosi. Every single election should be a get-out-the-vote campaign. And even if they want to downplay what she did, which was amazing... And chalk it up to, you know, you know, we can't look too much into this. You know, this is just a one-off. She's only 28. We shouldn't learn too much from her because she's just a youngin'. She's naive. No, learn from her and maybe you might actually win. But of course, Democrats, they don't really seem like, you know, they're that interested in, in winning, which is absurd. So, um, look, if you don't learn any lessons from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, then... I don't know what to say. You've just got to be kicked out of office. You are not someone who should be a leader at this time if you can't take away anything you need to change from this very important race. Republican pundits recently learned who Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is. She's their worst nightmare. And I think that they probably sense the level of excitement surrounding her campaign and realize that left-wing populism is, in fact, a threat to their political ideology. And as a result, right-wing smear merchants came out in droves to viciously smear her. But unfortunately for them, they ended up looking like complete idiots in the process because if you try to fearmonger about a particular candidate, you might want to make sure that you don't inadvertently promote their highly popular policy ideas in the process. 
Take a look. Last night, a 28-year-old socialist from New York defeated longtime Democratic incumbent in a congressional primary race. As President Trump said tonight, he got his ass kicked. And many are hailing Cortez as a rising star on the political landscape. But in reality, her views, her policy positions are actually downright scary. Look, by the way, he was a guy that was supposed to take over for Nancy Pelosi, perhaps. Look very carefully. This is the future. This is your modern Democratic Party. Cortez will likely win the general election in a Democratic district is pushing for, let's see, single payer, universal health care, universal jobs, government subsidized housing for everybody, tuition, free colleges. She wants to abolish ICE and, of course, impeach President Trump. Watch this. Would you push for a Trump impeachment? Should you uh, should you win? Well, I would uh, I would I would support impeachment. I think that, um, you know, we have the grounds to do it. I think what really we need to focus on is making sure that we are advocating for the policies to, to win in November. But ultimately, I think that what we need to kind of focus on is is ensuring that we can um, you know, when people break the law, potentially break the law, that we have to hold everyone accountable and that no person is above that law. Now, the only difference between the self-proclaimed socialist that you just saw and the rest of the Democratic Party is she's actually more honest. So, of course, that was Trump bootlicker and Republican Party propagandist Sean Hannity, who states her policy positions are actually downright scary. It's almost... Like, <laughs> the Republican Party is becoming a parody of itself at this point. Because let's look at those policy positions. I mean, what about that would scare someone who is reasonable and rational? That is nothing more than populist ideas that polls really well with the majority of Americans. I mean, for example, look at Medicare for All. 59 of Americans support that according to Kaiser Family Foundation. When you look at her federal jobs guarantee program, that polls above 50% in literally all 50 states. Now, when you look at Utah, they actually have the lowest amount of support for a federal jobs guarantee, but still, even then, they're at 57%, whereas most other states are closer to 70%. So, most Americans agree that a federal jobs guarantee is necessary. Now, when you look at gun control, well, 7 in 10 Americans favor stricter gun laws, according to a CNN poll conducted by SSRS, and a Quinnipiac poll found that 97% of Americans want universal background checks, and an ABC News slash Washington Post poll found that 50% of Americans support an assault weapons ban. When you look at climate change, 59% of Americans think that the environment should be prioritized over energy production. When it comes to campaign finance, Ipsos finds that a plurality of Americans oppose Citizens United and 57% want limits placed on money raised by super PACs. And additionally, in 2015, a CBS News poll found that 84% of Americans think money has too much influence in political campaigns. Bankrate found that 62% of the country supports free college for all and more Republicans support it than oppose it. When it comes to Wall Street regulation, the Lake research partners found that 91% of Americans believe Wall Street regulations are important and 78% want Wall Street held accountable. When it comes to LGBTQ rights, Pew finds that 62% of the country now supports marriage equality. Now, when it comes to immigration, Americans are kind of all over the place on this particular issue. A 2013 poll from Gallup found that while 83% of Americans support increased border security, 
87% actually support citizenship for those already in the country. Now, when it comes to abolishing ICE, that's really the only policy that doesn't have majority support that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is championing. But a HuffPost YouGov poll finds that pretty large percentages of voters really aren't sure on this matter yet, meaning that we still have time to convince them that we hold the right position here. That could change. So basically, everything on her platform is overwhelmingly popular with the exception of abolishing ICE. But again, Americans are really undecided. So, I mean, we have this unique opportunity to adopt this bold position and convince them. And I don't even really need to bring up polls for things like solidarity with Puerto Rico or women's rights, because who would be against that? But I do want to highlight <laughs> support seniors. Seniors, That's got to be my favorite here. Again, we got to hear what Sean Hannity said about policies like support seniors. Her policy positions are actually downright scary. Downright scary. The average Fox News viewer is older than 70. And you have this D-bag on Fox News trying to convince his elderly audience that support seniors is somehow, quote, a downright scary policy position. <laughs> Congratulations, you played yourself. So look, these aren't just mainstream policy ideas. Some of these ideas that she's championing are supported by the overwhelming majority of the American population. But when you look at the Overton window in this country, well, then you can see that it shifted so far to the right that when these types of populist left-wing ideas get proposed, they might seem radical because what is perceived as respectable political discourse in this country falls between the center-right and the far-right. So when people hear about these popular left-wing ideas, then they think, oh, wow, this person might be a radical. But in actuality, the real radicals are modern right-wingers. And they are doing everything in their power to fearmonger relentlessly and claim that the sky is falling and that, you know, a communist takeover is inevitable because these ideas, they have mainstream appeal. They're policy positions are not popular, which is why they are going to such great lengths to demonize Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, here's a quick compilation of some of the vitriol that has been spewed at Alexandria over the course of the last week, and it is disgusting. And this admitted communist that just won the primary in New York, she's a communist who preaches race war, class war, right out of communism. Now, there's a quote. Moreover, this is put out by her. Moreover, not only is this about gender and race, it's about class. Alexandra Cortez. Hey, lady, if it's so good, go to uh, any of the third world countries that have got socialism and see how fast you run out of there with your tail between your legs. What you see here is the, the sort of howling at the moon. Uh, branch of the Democratic Party in which they, they throw out whatever radical proposal they want and then suggest that this is truly authentic, that moral clarity lies in making proposals that are completely untenable, that will never be paid for. These people are communists, and that's a real problem. And, and Democrats are going to have to contend with this, and this is not going to be the last uh, sitting Democrat who is going to get ousted by some uh, uh, socialist who wants free stuff for everybody uh, that comes out of nowhere. 
None of that is to say that it's workable for Democrats to build a strategy, which and no one would, to build a strategy around a 28-year-old uh, first-time congresswoman mm-hmm. from the Bronx. And, and the Republicans would like to make her the face of the Democratic Party. I see the red socialist fist back there for added effect. Um, <laughs> the, it's so nice. subtle. So These are shrieking radicals. Gone is the party of JFK. Here is the party of radical socialism. And, you know, she, she's as radical as can be. But again, it, it is very easy to virtue signal about policies that have no impact when they're never implemented. Yeah. Free, you know, college, free health care, yeah. ending ICE, you know, ending all border control. Uh, this doesn't resonate very well with the majority of Americans. What do you think? Well, it resonated with the Democrats. It's the Bernie message that it seems like millennials are responding to. And she went to Twitter. It was a grassroots campaign. So she said all the right things and it seemed to work for her. But people are also suspecting some of my sources think that she got some, some money from Republicans, um, secretly that wanted her in the prime, in the, um, midterms because Crowley could not be beaten. So this is a huge upset for Democrats because, uh, many believed Crowley was too strong and perhaps Republicans helped her win. She will be a backbencher that doesn't really get a whole lot done, but she'll be vocal. She will be a hit on the cable news circuit. She'll be a media celebrity, but she won't exactly be an effective member of Congress. She's, you're turning over somebody in leadership who could get things done for somebody new, a Democratic Socialist of all people, who can't get things done. No new member of Congress can get things done. Now, the irony here is that As they demonize her as a communist and say that she's a radical, they're really the radicals here. Because again, I went over each and every single one of her policy positions and told you that most of them don't just have majority support, but they have the overwhelming support of the American people. Yet, these far right wingers have the nerve to call her a radical. I mean, Alex Jones said that she's an admitted communist that preaches race war, class war. One, she never said she's a communist, but when he says that she wants a class war, she's talking about how you can't disaggregate race and issues of social justice from economic issues and issues of economic justice. So, I mean, he's just straight up lying, doesn't even care, he's lying. And also, we have Ben Shapiro, who called her policy ideas radical proposals, and he said she's as radical as can be. Michelle Mockin called progressives like her shrieking radicals, but again, they're the radicals. Look at the policy ideas that they're proposing. They don't have majority support. When you juxtapose their ideas with Alexandria's ideas, well, Americans side with her. But yet they call her the radical. Unbelievable. Now, one host said that her policies, quote, don't resonate well with the majority of Americans. That's just completely factually incorrect. And a liberal analyst, quote, liberal analyst said, some of my sources think that she actually got some money from Republicans secretly. Now, where did she get that from exactly? Well, she got it from her anus. She pulled it right out of her ass and decided to say it even though she has absolutely zero evidence for this claim. Nearly 77% of Alexandria's donations were from small individual contributors and only 23% were over $200. So you can try to lie about her record by conspiracy mongering, Miss Fox News liberal analyst, but we all know that you're lying. And I think even the host smelt bullshit when you said that because he didn't really push for more. So, um, additionally, the guy at the end there, 
he condescendingly said that, well, you know, she's a newcomer, she can't get anything done, and he, he kind of rolled his eyes when he said she's a democratic socialist of all people. I mean, these individuals are so out of touch. They live in that DC bubble, and they think that right-wing radicalism is perfectly acceptable and mainstream, but left-wing radicalism that actually polls really well among Americans, that's just crazy, that's nonsense. But what they're saying is completely idiotic. And this guy who's claiming that she can't get anything done, well, he doesn't realize that she actually can probably get more done than other people in Congress because she's not put on a leash by her donors like other corporate puppets in Congress. So she can actually do whatever she wants. She's free. She just has to represent her constituents. So she might actually be the most effective member of Congress. But again, the irony here is that all of the people calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and progressives radicals are actually radicals themselves. Because again, when you go back to the Overton window, Democrats are very similar to conservative parties we see around the world and in Europe. And Republicans are actually more comparable to fringe right-wing extremist parties than mainstream conservative parties we see across Europe. I mean, think about this. Do you think that Christian Democrats in Germany or conservatives in the UK are more similar to Republicans or Democrats. Those conservative parties that we see in Europe are much closer to Democrats, ideologically speaking. So really, it's modern Republicans who are radicals given the context of American politics and seeing just how far to the right the Overton window is. But the reason why these right-wing pundits are trying to frame Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as radical and say that she's a communist and smear her is because they know left-wing populism is the only thing that beats back the rise of right-wing demagogues. Now, what did centrist and center-right people have to say about her victory? Once upon a time in American politics, it was a business of persuasion. You would try to persuade people that your ideas were slightly better than the other side. It has become a game of incitement. And what Trump is doing is radicalizing American politics. And he is a beneficiary, the more radical politics becomes. When it becomes a game of incitement between a far left who says, everybody's going to have a government job, everybody's going to have daycare, everybody's going to have retirement, free, schools. free <laughs> school, free high school, free college education, as we careen towards $30 trillion in debt. When we have dishonest progressivism, Right. And we have dishonest Trumpism, an alienated middle that surrenders. They break their will to fight back. They become disenfranchised and hopeless about the idea that free market capitalism or liberal democracy can prevail in a radical era. He called what she's championing, the ideas that she's fighting for, dishonest progressivism. And he equated her to a left-wing equivalent of Donald Trump and claim that, well, you know, if we have far leftists and far right-wingers, then there's going to be this middle who is completely left out and abandoned and feels dis disenfranchised. But again, going back to the Overton window for the final time in the context of American politics with a right-wing Overton window, what he's describing as left-wing radicalism is really just left of center in actuality. Maybe L1 on this chart at the furthest, but I think it's more accurate to place someone like AOC left of center since her policy proposals actually have bipartisan support. When you look at Medicare for All, for example, well, more Republicans actually favor it than oppose it. So basically, any time someone describes a left-winger 
as a radical, you can pretty much dismiss that individual as someone who knows nothing about politics. Because someone who's a centrist in the context of American politics with a right-wing Overton window, really, they are center-right. So again, don't let people convince you that left-wing radicalism and this rise of communism is upon us because that's horseshit. What we really should be worrying about is right-wing radicalism, given that the Overton window is so far to the right and we actually have literal Nazis running in the United States currently and a right-wing party that's carrying out proto-fascist policies as we speak. It's right-wing radicalism that's the problem, not left-wing radicalism. You'd be more likely to find a unicorn in public than a left-wing radical. Now, luckily for us, even if right-wing radicalism is a problem, the antidote to that poison that's poisoning political discourse is left-wing populism. And thankfully for all of us, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is showing us that Americans are progressive when it comes to the policy issues. So as you all know, Justice Anthony Kennedy is set to retire from the Supreme Court at the end of summer, and President Donald Trump has wasted absolutely no time uh, going through replacements thus far, going through his shortlist, and he is set to announce Anthony Kennedy's replacement on July 9th, which is this upcoming Monday. Now, he has interviewed some individuals, and thus far, he does seem excited about them, saying, quote, they are outstanding people, they are really incredible people in so many different ways. Now, obviously, that's an empty statement that means absolutely nothing. It tells us nothing about their interpretation of the Constitution or how they plan to interpret the Constitution with regard to Roe v. Wade. And really, at this point, I could go through the shortlist of people for you that he's considering. I mean, that includes Charles Candy of Georgia's Court of Appeals or Allison Ide of the U.S. 10th Circuit Court of Appeals or Joan Larson and Mike Lee. And at this point, I, I really don't think that that matters because no matter who he chooses, you can almost guarantee that he or she will be a hardline conservative who will undoubtedly vote to overturn Roe v. Wade or Obergefell v. Hodges. Now, if I'm Chuck Schumer right now, I'm gearing up for the fight of my life because I'm less concerned currently as a progressive with who Donald Trump is going to pick because we're going to have to fight that individual no matter what. And I'm more concerned with what Chuck Schumer is doing and what Senate Democrats are doing. Chuck Schumer right now should be cracking skulls. He should be making sure that individuals like Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heitkamp aren't going to go full MAGA and just straight up vote with Donald Trump here. He should be doing what he can as a leader using all the tools at his disposal. And I mean all the tools at his disposal. However, chances are they're going to roll over and die. We're already seeing signs that that will in fact be the case. Because as Alexander Bolton of The Hill reports, Senate Democratic leader Charles Schumer is under pressure from the left to whip Democrats hard to oppose any Supreme Court nominee who might vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that established a woman's right to an abortion. Liberal activist groups are urging their supporters to attend a town hall meeting with Schumer in Brooklyn on Monday night 
state and press him to commit to squeeze red state Democrats who might feel pressure to back Trump's pick. We expect his constituents to be asking him really directly if he is going to commit to whipping the caucus and keeping Democratic voters together and in line in opposing Trump's extreme Supreme Court nominee, said Elizabeth Beavers, Associate Policy Director at Indivisible Project, a liberal advocacy group dedicated to defeating the Trump agenda and electing progressive leaders. Now again, if you're Chuck Schumer, you force Democrats like Joe Manchin into submission. Because right now, these red state Democrats think that if they go full MAGA, that that will improve their electoral chances. But what Chuck Schumer should be doing is saying, look, if you vote for this nominee, you better hope to God that you don't get reelected because I'm going to make your life hell. You get no committee appointments. You get no fundraising. You're cut off from the fucking party if you go along with this. Because can you imagine what would happen if they actually voted to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, you'd probably see at least a dozen states within months enact bans on abortion. It'd be absolutely devastating to women's rights in this country. So if you truly are going to claim that the Democratic Party has the moral high ground, you've got to fight. And that means you've got to beat members of your own caucus into submission. Unfortunately, though, it seems like Democrats, they're they're just not willing to put up a fight. Kamala Harris pledged to fight, of course, and I believe that she will put up at least, you know, a little bit of fight, but she didn't commit to going as far as to boycott confirmation hearings, which I think could be really powerful. Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, and Joe Donnelly, well, (laughs) they're not likely to put up a fight at all. In fact, I think we would be better off fighting them to not go along with Donald Trump's pick. Doug Jones of Alabama won't say whether or not he'll resist Donald Trump's nominee at all. He probably won't. And Dianne Feinstein told people to be cautious when it comes to fighting or even delaying the vote because, you know, you you gotta make sure that you roll over and die anytime Republicans exert even just a minimal amount of pressure on you because that's what Democrats do. They fold like a deck of cards anytime they face even a little bit of resistance from Republicans. So they're not just going to willingly fight this. Chuck Schumer's gonna have to crack some skulls. Be a fucking leader. Prove once and for all that you deserve that position. I mean, anytime he's had the chance, he's folded. Make this a lasting part of your legacy and fight Donald Trump tooth and nail. Look, you might not be able to to stop it. You might not. But if you at least put up a fight, more so than the fight you put up for, what, a day and a half, two days during the government shutdown when you completely abandoned Dreamers, I mean, you've got to fight. That's basically... (laughs) That's the takeaway. But we can kind of get some insight into the thinking of some members of the Democrats when we look at this clip from Tammy Duckworth and her view on this issue because, you know, it really gives you some insight into just how weak and feckless this party really is. Listen to what she has to say about Joe Manchin potentially voting for Donald Trump's nominee. There are obviously a lot of Democrats uh, from red states, states that Trump won, who are up for re-election this year. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on them. Uh, Heidkamp from North Dakota, uh, Donnelly from Indiana, Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, some of them are even uh, op- uh, opponents of abortion rights. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Is sh- should they vote the way that they need to vote to win re-election if it comes down to that? Or do you think they should vote the way that their party wants them to vote? I will tell you what I've learned in my short time here in the Senate, that those all three of them vote in whatever they need to do to take care of the people of their state. They put their constituents first. 
And uh, I've seen some real bravery from the three of them as well. Uh, Manchin, for example, uh, has said time and again that he will protect health care for the people of West Virginia. Um, same with Heidi Heitkamp. They, who they put first is not themselves, is not the party. They put their own states and the people, their constituents first. And I just ask them to vote for their constituents. And they will know um, which way to vote then. Understand what she's saying. It has to be the most ridiculous thing ever. She is suggesting that it might be in the best interest of Joe Manchin's constituents to vote for Trump's inevitably right-wing extremist Supreme Court nominee. In other words, what she's really saying here is, you know, maybe we don't have the solutions that will help out all Americans. Maybe, you know, Republicans are just doing a better job at looking out for some of the people in this country, and we only can cater to a few, you know, um, areas of, of the country. And to add another layer to this insanity of what she was talking about, she actually called Joe Manchin brave. I've seen some real bravery from the three of them as well. Uh, Manchin, for example. That tells you everything you need to know about this good-for-nothing, spineless, feckless, weak joke of a party. When they should all be dogpiling on Joe Manchin. This former progressive, this so-called Democrat, decides to commend Joe Manchin for being brave. He's going to do what's best for people, you know, in, in West Virginia. Even if that includes voting for a right-winger on the Supreme Court. You know, because, you know, Democrats, we don't, we don't have policies that help out all Americans. Republicans help out some Americans. We help out some Americans. That's their argument. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I don't know what to say about this. That's how stupid, how strategically inept members of the democratic party are again i don't even know if they're able to defeat donald trump even if 100 percent of democrats got on board and everyone here is um you know if, if you listen to cable news shows they're talking about how we can get susan collins and lisa murkowski to flip and that's possible but what you really got to focus on is getting democrats to just stay united on this one fucking issue that's super important. But there's already a ton of glaring signs, huge red flags that indicate that they're going to fold. Mark my words, Donald Trump's going to put up someone and uh, they're going to pass through with flying colors. I would love to be wrong here. I hope I'm wrong here. But Democrats have never proven me wrong. Never. I would love to be proven wrong by Democrats just once. Prove me wrong on this, Democrats. Show me you have a spine. Show me, Chuck Schumer, that you have a spine. But we all know how this is going to go. The same way it's gone before. If they do put up a fight at all, they'll cave in days after Republicans criticize them and Donald Trump criticizes them on Twitter, and he'll get what he wants. They're not the resistance. They're the assistance. That's how they've been behaving since Trump has become president, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon. So by now, I think that most progressives have noticed that DNC chairman Tom Perez has co-opted the language progressives use when talking about healthcare. He often states that, you know, to Democrats, healthcare is a right and not a privilege, but 
if you ask him if he supports Medicare for all, he just straight up dodges the question. Now, in an interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory, he was asked for some clarity on the Democratic Party's stance when it comes to health care. And as you will see in this clip here, he just couldn't give Chris Cuomo any clarity whatsoever on this matter. She represents things that are decidedly different than a lot of people in your party. She is left, and she might be left of Bernie Sanders on some issues, saying that ICE has to go. Is that a reflection of who your party will be across the country? Listen, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran a spectacular campaign, and as a Latino, it's inspiring to see another Latina uh, run and win. And, and she ran because she was focused on the issues that people in her community cared about. Just as when Connor mm -hmm. Lamb won a few months ago, he was focused on the issues that mattered to people in his districts. And we've been winning elections, Chris, statewide elections, uh, congressional elections, state legislative elections, mayoral, et cetera, because our candidates have been laser focused on health care, laser focused on uh, immigration, as uh, Alexandria was doing. But laser her solutions, Tom, on Medicare for all, her solutions on immigration, get rid of ICE, are those things that the party will adopt as a platform or are you going to leave it to district by district, make the choices that work for you as a candidate? Well, listen, we believe as Democrats that health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. We certainly have a debate about how to get there. And there are differences of opinion among Democrats. Uh, Joe Crowley, who uh, had a, has had a distinguished career in Congress, was uh, uh, a proponent of the Medicare for all proposal. So we're going to have I think what's most important is where we are united as Democrats. Are you uh, united unity doesn't mean on unanimity. single payer? Are you united on that? Is Medicare for we, all the Democrat position? We are united on the fact that health care must be a right for all and not a privilege for a few. And right, we but have what does been that mean? What model are you going to adopt, Tom? Are you going there's, to adopt there's single many payer? Different ways, there's many different ways, Chris, to get there. Single payer is a hot button for a reason. I keep saying it for a reason, Tom. I understand the economics. I understand the logistics of it. We're all doing our homework on the journalism side to understand this, and it's very complex. But to voters, what that will signal is a cost shifting uh, that will make health care from the government perspective a lot more of a heavy lift. Uh, it's going to cost a lot more money if you go to single payer. And I just want to know, where's your head in terms of whether or not well, that's where your party is, single payer? No, I, again, our, our party is, I think, very clear, which is that we believe that health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. Yes, we're having a debate on how to get there. But mm -hmm. what's important to know is the Republicans are having a debate on how to move the ball backward. They want less people to have access to health care. They don't believe that a pre-existing condition Mm -hmm. uh, matters that, that you can be denied uh, insurance coverage for that. And that so, does seem to be I, on the table for them right now. It's true. It, it, and, and that's why um, this nomination matters. Uh, there's so much at stake. And I think the most important thing Democrats can do is don't fret about this. We've got to fight back. We've got to organize and we've got to vote. So obviously he dodged the question. And he said three different times, healthcare is a right and not a privilege. He said that, and then uh, Chris Cuomo asked him if Democrats are united on Medicare for all, and he said it again. We are united on the fact that healthcare must be a right for all and not a privilege for a few. And then Chris Cuomo asked him a third time, and he said the same thing. We believe as Democrats that healthcare is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. I mean, he said three different times that he believes healthcare is a right for all and not a privilege for a few, but he refuses to state whether or not Democrats support Medicare for all. If you don't support Medicare for all, then you don't believe that healthcare is a right. Because rights 
aren't denied to you because you're poor. Rights are guaranteed to every single American in this country. So to suggest that healthcare is a right, but you're not on board with Medicare for all, it shows that you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth at the same fucking time, and you're lying to us, Tom Perez. But what did he do since he, you know, he, he didn't want to answer the question? He pivoted to Republicans. Well, look at the Republicans. Look at what they want. They want to go backwards. Yeah, we all know that Republicans are horrible on the issue of health care. But what do you want to do? What's your response to Republicans that want to roll back protections for pre-existing conditions? What's your response to... Republicans that want to embolden these for-profit health insurance companies. Well, we saw. He doesn't have a response. He just has to regurgitate the same progressive talking point over and over again, when in fact, he doesn't believe it. Anyone who says healthcare is a right and not a privilege, but doesn't support Medicare for all, they're gaslighting you. They want you to think that they support Medicare for all, but in actuality, they don't. Now, I do want to get to what Chris Cuomo says because he states it's going to cost a lot more money if you do go to single payer. Now, from an individual perspective, that's just flat out wrong. It's factually incorrect. Even if you will be paying more in taxes under a Medicare for all system, you're still going to net save money because you're not going to have to be paying your monthly health insurance premiums, which go up all the time. So in terms of, you know, looking at this from an individual standpoint, Medicare for all will lead to you having more money in your pocketbook. Now, from a governing perspective, that's still not settled. Some estimates suggest that Medicare for All could save us $17 trillion over 10 years because prices would ultimately come down under a single-payer type system. But even if that estimate is incorrect and Medicare for All does cost more, it's still the morally right thing to do because if we can afford trillions of dollars on war, I think we can afford Medicare for All. So... We need to get our priorities in order. That's the thing. We always talk about, oh, how are you going to pay for this when it comes to progressive policies that are overwhelmingly popular? But how many news pundits asked Republicans how they were going to pay for their trillion dollar tax cut to wealthy people? Nobody asked that. So there's this double standard to where any time a progressive policy is proposed, well, the number one go-to question is how are you going to pay for that? But when it comes to military spending, tax cuts for the rich, well, they never asked that question. Now, getting back to Tom Perez, you know, after seeing how difficult it was for him to state that, um, the party as a whole believes that uh, Medicare for all is the way to go. He, he, he actually had the nerve to say that the party is unified with regard to health care. Well, listen, you know, health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. That is in danger with this Supreme Court. And we have seen democratic solidarity on issues of health care. Now, in that short 11 second clip, there was so much wrong. First of all, when he was what he was saying there was he was talking about Donald Trump's Supreme Court pick, but he was implying that Medicare for all was at stake here when that's not what the Affordable Care Act is, because he is correct that Donald Trump's incoming Supreme Court nominee, if confirmed, could roll back the Affordable Care Act. But Obamacare was not Medicare for all. But what Tom Perez did here was he implied that universal health care was at stake when Obamacare still left millions of people either underinsured or uninsured. So don't pretend as if that's the case and don't gaslight us and say that there's solidarity on this issue of health care when it comes to Democrats when half the party still refuses to support Medicare for all. And finally, don't tell us that health care is a right and not a privilege. 
if you don't support Medicare for all, but he said it again. So Tom Perez, he is a liar. He's a weasel. He really, really desperately wants us to believe that Democrats support healthcare as a right when they don't. That's just the fact. They don't. Sure, it's the case that half of Democrats in the House support it, but what, only 16 Democrats have signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill in the Senate? What gives? Until your party, at least a slim majority, signs on to Medicare for All, you don't get to claim that healthcare is a right, or you don't get to claim that Democrats think healthcare is a right. Now, I'm going to take this opportunity to promote the petition that I created calling on Tom Perez to resign. We are now less than 100 signatures away from reaching 10,000. Now, again, this may not go anywhere. It probably won't go anywhere, but we still need to make our voices heard and we need to empower ourselves going into 2020 because if the establishment already knows that we're dissatisfied with Tom Perez, then hopefully that will make the DNC and Tom Perez a little bit less inclined to do any shenanigans in 2020 like they did in uh, in 2016. So, at the end of the day, Tom Perez is nothing more than a liar. He doesn't believe healthcare is a right. People who believe healthcare is a right will come out and endorse Medicare for all unequivocally. And they don't have to squirm when you ask them the question. If they support Medicare for all, they don't have to pivot to the Republicans. If they support Medicare for all, they just say, yes, I support Medicare for all. And those are the only people who can claim that they think healthcare is a right and not a privilege because we don't deny rights to people who can't afford them. That's not the way that rights work, Tom Perez. So stop using our language. If you're going to use our language, then you have to endorse the policies that are inextricably linked to that political rhetoric. Last week, we talked about Bernie Sanders' reluctance to unequivocally say that he would support abolishing ICE, and I said that we really needed to put pressure on him if we do in fact want him to adopt this position, because Bernie Sanders, unlike most politicians, he actually does listen to Americans. And, you know, over the last week, he's done some soul-searching, and it turns out he is in fact coming over to our side, because he is signaling support perhaps to maybe abolish ICE. So he stated on Twitter, in 2002, I voted against the creation of DHS and the establishment of ICE. That was the right vote. Now it is time to do what Americans overwhelmingly want, abolish the cruel, dysfunctional immigration system we have today and pass comprehensive immigration reform. That will mean restructuring the agencies that enforce our immigration laws, including ICE. We must not be about tearing small children away from their families. We must not be about deporting dreamers, young people who have lived in this country virtually their entire lives. We must not be about forcing over 10 million undocumented people, many of whom have been here for decades to continue living in fear and anxiety. Congress must do what the American people want. Let us create a humane and rational immigration system. So understand that it doesn't seem like he's 100% there yet, like he's not willing to say, I want to abolish ICE just yet, but saying that he wants to restructure ICE is a step in the right direction, is a drastic step in the right direction. We're starting to really move the needle here because Kirsten Gillibrand became the first senator that states that she wants to abolish ICE, and now other semi-progressive Democrats like Bill de Blasio are also getting on board. And last week, we talked about how Kamala Harris was signaling, you know, a change of heart as well. So look, it, it takes time to change hearts and minds, and we've been talking about abolish ICE vocally for what? 
a, a month at the most? The media has been talking about this idea now for like a week since Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won. So it takes time, and we're already making a tremendous amount of progress. Now look, I, I hear from the progressives who say, this is, you know, we might be going too far here. We don't want to say abolish ICE. We don't want to push them, you know, to this point where they're not electorally viable and Trump ends up winning again in 2020. But you have to understand, even if I see why individuals think that way, because, of course, when you look at public opinion polls, it indicates that people aren't really in favor of abolishing ICE yet. In fact, they're against it. However, there's still a large percentage of voters that aren't sure which gives us a unique opportunity to educate people, educate them and let them know that ICE is completely unnecessary. And currently, Republicans are trying to convince people that those of us in favor of abolishing ICE, well, we're crazy. We want open borders and, you know, we're, we're just these extremists. But that's just a laughable statement. ICE was created in 2003. That's it. It was voted on in 2002, created in 2003, and it wasn't like when ICE was created, we then established borders. We've always had borders, and I can assure you all that we'll still have borders even after ICE ceases to exist. So, of course, as usual, Republicans don't have an argument as to why we shouldn't have an American Gestapo in this country that just tracks down and harasses immigrants. So what do they do? They fearmonger about our position, create this straw man, and say that we're in favor of open borders. Nobody's saying that. We're saying we need to abolish ICE, and this is a position that is reasonable and based off of their numerous human rights abuses and their mistreatment of immigrants. And look, when it comes to border security, we already have other government agencies that do secure the border. We have the United States Border Patrol. What ICE does is seeks out undocumented immigrants and rounds them up. They're essentially American Gestapo. They're unnecessarily cruel and their existence is redundant seeing that there's already multiple other agencies that do what you say is essential to, you know, maintain maintain our current immigration system. And look, we have ICE offices across the country. We have an ICE office in Portland, Oregon. Oregon doesn't border any other country like Texas does. So why are they in Oregon? They're not protecting the border. They're just here to track down and harass immigrants. But understand that Republicans like Donald Trump will contend that, well, you know, we want to get rid of borders. That's why we're advocating for the abolition of ICE. But again, if ICE was about borders, then they wouldn't be placed in any states that weren't you know, uh, bordering Mexico. That just wouldn't be the case. So it, it makes no sense how somebody can make this jump that, you know, someone wanting to abolish ICE must also mean that they want open borders. That's just not correct. Getting rid of ICE, it doesn't mean that we're going to be crippled and we'll be incapable of dealing with immigrants and immigration when, again, ICE is just a cruel arm of, you know, a, a collective of agencies that deal with immigration, and we don't need it. And if you're a Republican, and you are a small government Republican specifically, wouldn't you want to get on board with less government? I mean, this is an agency that if you eliminate it, then you are literally shrinking the size of government. How can you not be on board and still claim to be a small government Republican? So, I mean, look, at the end of the day, we... We've got to change hearts and minds. Public opinion might not be on our side on this issue yet, but that doesn't mean that we don't fight for it. We have to fight for it because that's what's right. There was a point in time where Medicare for All didn't have a majority of support. 
And we still fought for it because that's the right thing to do because it would improve lives. So you've got to start somewhere. And this is just the beginning of a national conversation about the utility of ICE. And hopefully most Americans will get educated and realize that this is a new agency that's unnecessarily cruel and unnecessary, generally speaking. If you want, you know, an agency, a law enforcement agency to protect the border, we've already got that. We don't need ICE. We just don't. And abolishing ICE would get rid of a lot of this cruelty we see and human rights abuses that we see, you know, uh, committed against immigrants. So I think this is the right thing to do. And I, I'm going to continue to push the envelope on this issue. So as you all know, it wasn't a Republican that spearheaded the effort to kill net neutrality in California, which if passed would have been the strongest set of protections for net neutrality in the country. It was actually a Democrat. This Democrat in particular, Miguel Santiago, and the reason why he decided to kill net neutrality, unilaterally so, mind you, was because AT&T lobbied for him to do this. They were his fifth largest contributor, and they didn't want this law to pass. So what did he do? He killed it. Now, after he decided to single-handedly be the one person that gutted Scott Wiener's net neutrality bill... After receiving some criticism, he decided to do a little bit of backtracking, and he proclaimed that net neutrality lives. So now, he's reportedly working on reviving their net neutrality bill with Scott Wiener, but the problem is that, look, he's funded by AT&T. He's already been bought off. He's a sellout. And if he's taken, if he's already taken this much money from AT&T, we can't trust him. We just can't. The only way you can assure residents in California that they will get the net neutrality bill that basically they were promised that Scott Wiener has been working on for months is if you vote this guy out of office this November. And luckily, Miguel Santiago actually has an opponent running against him. And that individual's name is Kevin Jang. And he's an unequivocal supporter of net neutrality and specifically Scott Wiener's net neutrality bill and on Twitter he states clearly my name is Kevin Jang and I'm running against Miguel Santiago to represent all of assembly district 53 if elected I will support net neutrality not cut it apart original version now he also asked Miguel Santiago the same question we were all asking before we learned just how much money he took from AT&T he states seriously what's wrong with you now, when you go to his website, you literally can't miss his stance on net neutrality because it's the first thing that pops up. It's front and center. And the good news is that Kevin Jang isn't just a good candidate because of his stance on net neutrality, but he's actually seemingly progressive. So he supports Medicare for all. He supports tuition-free public college. So if you live in District 53, this is your chance to vote this guy out of office. He killed net neutrality. Now, you get to kill his career, vote him out of office, and look, I think that Kevin Jang can win. Will it be difficult? Absolutely. You can tell this is a very small grassroots campaign, but if Kevin makes this a referendum on net neutrality, I think that voters in that district will know that they've got to go with Kevin Jang and kick Miguel Santiago out, and imagine how powerful a message that would send to lawmakers across the country who, like Santiago, are funded by AT&T, Verizon, or Comcast. If they 
saw how Miguel lost his job after he killed net neutrality. Well, that would drastically improve the chances of net neutrality passing in other states if lawmakers are worried that they'd lose their jobs if they go against it. So if you really want to save net neutrality, then you've got to sign up and do what you can to phone bank and canvas for Kevin Jang and get him elected and defeat Miguel Santiago. Make this a referendum on net neutrality. Go to individuals within that district and let them know where America stands on this issue. We overwhelmingly support net neutrality. This is a bipartisan issue. So Kevin has this unique opportunity to where he doesn't just have to rely on progressives. He can rely on Republicans who overwhelmingly also support net neutrality. So if we kick this corporate puppet out of office, think of how powerful a message that would send to not just other lawmakers, but lobbyists for AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon who think they can buy politicians and get away with it. So, you know, in the coming weeks, I will be reaching out to Kevin Jang. Hopefully, he will come on the program and tell us about his campaign. This isn't just about California. If you don't live in California, like me, I live in Oregon. We have to make sure that we fight for net neutrality. If California passes the strongest net neutrality protection in the country, that could set a new standard across the country. It could, you know, galvanize other states to follow their lead. So we've got to we've got to do this. It's not just about California. And it's, you know, I'm not just focusing on it because I'm playing favorites with California. I mean, certainly it's important because they have a very high population and they're the world's sixth largest economy. So there's a lot of people there. But this is about net neutrality for everyone, because really in politics, you'll find that, you know, we operate on momentum a lot of the times, and specifically when it comes to these statewide issues, there's something known as the domino effect. When one state passes a particular law, well, other states might soon follow suit. I mean, look at marijuana. When Washington and Colorado voted to legalize cannabis just two years later, Oregon and Alaska voted to legalize cannabis. When Washington voted uh, to pass net neutrality, Oregon voted to pass net neutrality. California was on its way to do it until this shill decided to kill it for everyone and ruin it for everyone. So look, we've got to do this. It's going to be tough. Miguel Santiago is an incumbent, and incumbents always have the advantage. But if you care about net neutrality, you've got to give it a shot. Support Kevin Jang and get this shill out of office. There's a multitude of systemic issues in this country that plagues our democracy. I mean, money and politics, campaign finance laws are one of them. But another one that I've consistently talked about has been the need for electoral reform because our democracy would function a lot more smoothly if more voices were heard. We can't just continue to prop up this duopoly, this two-party duopoly, because it's not working. There's a bunch of people left out, namely people on the left. So if we really want to make third parties, and not just third parties, but, you know, a fourth and a fifth party, and I say third party in terms of, you know, more than two parties, but if we want really three, four, five, maybe even six parties like other countries have, then there's one thing we all need to pursue as progressives. And that undoubtedly is electoral reform. Now, one of the easiest things we can do 
is push for ranked choice voting. And some states have already carried this out. And thankfully, in Massachusetts, there's currently a coalition that is pushing for this. And as Shira Schoenberg of Mass Live reports, a group of Massachusetts politicians and government reformers wants to change the way elections are conducted, and it could be looking toward a 2020 ballot initiative to do it. Voter Choice Massachusetts is a growing coalition pushing for the adoption of ranked choice voting. The argument made by Executive Director Adam Friedman in favor of ranked choice voting is blunt. Our politics are dysfunctional, Friedman said. Ranked choice voting is a system where voters can rank their first, second, and third choice candidates, and so on. A winner is determined when someone gets more than 50% of first choice votes. If no one gets 50% of the initial voting, the first choice votes that went to the candidate with the least support will get redistributed to to those voters second choice candidate for example say george w bush al gore and ralph nader are running for president none of them wins a majority of the vote but nader comes in third any voter who chose nader as their top choice will have their votes distributed to their second choice candidate either gore or bush and whoever ends up with a majority wins friedman said the result of this system is it changes politics from a zero-sum game where various factions battle it out to one that can be more unifying and inclusive, since politicians have to get support from a broader base of voters. Friedman said it eliminates the idea of spoiler candidates in which a third-party candidate is blamed for allowing a less favored candidate to win. Now, if you're one of the individuals, if you're one of these rich celebrities who like to vote shame people like Susan Sarandon or third-party voters, this is your ticket to never have to worry about a spoiler again, push for ranked choice voting, but... I mean, people who vote shame, they don't push for ranked choice voting, and it's because they don't they don't care about change. They just want, you know, uh, conformity. They want someone in the White House who's going to make them feel good. They don't care that people only, you know, vote third party, really, or go for a third party option or a more unorthodox choice if the two-party duopoly failed them. But this would further democratize our country and make it so that way a third party and a fourth party is possible. Now look, there's two different ways that you can push for this. Certainly, you could push for this at the state level. You can try to get ranked choice voting on the ballot. This is how a lot of activists and proponents of cannabis got it legalized in multiple states. They they pushed for it. They tried to make it a ballot initiative, and it passed. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to push for it federally. And in fact, there's already a bill proposed by Jamie Raskin and Ro Connum, and that is the Fair Representation Act. That's H.R. 3057. And what that would do is it would end gerrymandering it would implement ranked choice voting nationwide and most importantly it would move us from single member districts to multi-member districts of three to five representatives so in other words instead of us just voting and have only one person from our district get in well now there'd be three to five people depending on the district that would get elected Meaning that you might see more than just the two parties emerge. It probably wouldn't happen overnight, but certainly this type of electoral reform would make other types of parties more viable. And if you're wondering why America has only two parties, but other countries like Germany have more parties, have like five or six parties that actually win... Well, it's because their electoral systems are set up in a way that allow for either mixed member or, or multi-member districts where you either vote for, you know, a party and then you vote for candidates and, you know, not just one person wins, multiple people win. But it's basically it's more fair. It's more proportional representation. 
not winner take all where there's going to be one winner and one loser and everyone else who doesn't like those two are completely alienated and not represented. No, this is a more egalitarian, fair and democratic way overall to conduct elections. We don't just need a third party. We don't just need a fourth party. I think for how ideologically diverse America is, we need about six parties. And I'm not just saying we need six parties to exist because in this country, we we technically have hundreds of, par uh, of parties in this country, you know, uh, across the country. Um, in various states and whatnot, but we need six to be our effective number of political parties. Now, what that means is that that's the number of political parties that actually can get power and win, win seats and have power to affect change. That's what we need in this country. It would, it would dramatically transform this country. It wouldn't end all the problems that our country faces because we certainly still need to get money out of politics. We need to, um, we need the Republican Party to collapse. We need a left-wing party and not just two right-wing parties. But it would be a start. This would give us more options. It would make America a lot more democratic. And I think that it would make voters feel a lot more happy about the system that we live in. Think about this. If someone like you or I lied as much as the president lies... Nobody within our social circles would take us seriously. They'd give us shit all the time. They'd make fun of us because, I mean, when, when you lie that much, when you embellish everything you say, when lies are just compulsory, people won't take you seriously. However, we have a president that continues to blatantly lie every single day, and it's getting to the point where I don't think it's unreasonable to start questioning whether or not the president is uh, literally delusional, and I mean that. So on June 30th, he states on Twitter, I never pushed the Republicans in the House to vote for the immigration bill, either good lot one or two, because it could never have gotten enough Democrats as long as there is the 60 vote threshold. I released many prior to the vote, knowing we need more Republicans to win in November. However, just days prior on June 27th, he did exactly what he said he didn't do. And he did it in all caps. He states, House Republicans should pass the strong but fair immigration bill known as Goodlot 2 in their afternoon vote today, even though the Dems won't let it pass in the Senate. Passage will show that we want strong borders and security, while the Dems want open borders, equal crime, win. Now, what's crazy is that he didn't even bother to delete that tweet. Both of those tweets are still up, in fact. So, I mean lie after gratuitous lie after lie there's got to be a point where we all come together as a nation and discuss legitimately so and earnestly so whether or not the president is delusional and i i, I really mean that you know i always kind of pegged trump as a compulsive liar I don't think he even realizes that he lies sometimes, but to contradict himself in such a brazen way, I mean, at some point, we've got to look at the psychology of this guy and wonder if there's something really deeply problematic going on there to lie like this. This isn't normal. If I did this, if you did this again... We would be outcasts within our social circles. But the president boldly proclaimed in all caps that they should pass good lot too. And then days later, he said, oh, I never said that. 
We've got the receipts, buddy. We can tell exactly what the fuck you said and didn't say. How can you, with a straight face, even face the American people after you continuously lie? It's because I don't think he even knows he's lying. I think maybe he actually believes that he never said this. If people showed him the tweet that he put out a few days prior in all caps, maybe he would deny that it was him. Maybe he'd think it was photoshopped. I don't know. I don't think this is a well-adjusted human being. I think there's something fundamentally wrong with his brain. And I'm not saying that, you know, to be condescending or derisive. I'm saying the president is not mentally fit to serve. But in spite of his compulsive lies and after getting called out expectedly for being a liar and saying another lie and just being a piece of shit, generally speaking, he had something to say about people who criticize him. I hope the other side realizes that they better just take it easy. They better just take it easy because some of the language used, some of the words used, some of even some of the radical ideas, I really think they're very bad for the country. I think they're actually very dangerous for the country. All they're the while, very, while very you're dangerous. creating economic growth and you're creating job opportunities. So they better just take it easy on me. After I pull down my pants take a dump on the Constitution daily after I implement these draconian immigration policies, after I do trickle-down economics again, which will ultimately lead to another economic crash, which will exacerbate income and wealth inequality, as I make sure that we're not doing anything to stop climate change. Don't you dare criticize me. As I lie through my teeth day after day after day after day after day, don't you dare criticize me. This individual has told more than 3,000 lies since he became president. He lies so much it became necessary for people to fact-check him regularly. At a campaign rally about a month ago, he said 35 lies in the time period of an hour. This is not a normal human being. This is a deeply, deeply flawed, potentially delusional, blatant, compulsive liar. And if you watch that interview, I mean... The host from Fox News goes on to stroke his ego, you know, in the same way that you'd see state media and authoritarian regimes do puff pieces for dictators. I mean, this is the absurdity of modern American politics. It's not just that, you know, the president lies every single day, but that he carries out these disgustingly abysmal policies that harm Americans and then has the audacity to tell his opponents they better just take it easy on me. He lies every single day and he still has a core base of support that will never abandon him. This isn't normal. Whoever can lie like that and not be ashamed or perhaps not even know that they're lying, there's something wrong with them. I don't think he's mentally fit to serve. I really don't. And he's genuinely perplexed as to how people can you know, continue to criticize him and say, hey, come on, take it easy on me. I don't know what else to say. He needs help. Republican bullies who continue to further rig the economy or wreck the planet and uh, violate human rights, they're still being confronted by citizens in public who are dissatisfied with their ongoing shilling. Because you can only shit on a population and ignore a population so much to where they just become so fed up that when there's no justice... There's no peace. And just because you clocked out of your job at the White House or a government agency doesn't mean that you get to get away 
with the shit that you did at work. No, it doesn't matter if you're off the clock and on your own time, you're going to be confronted if your policies are harmful to Americans. Now, the latest individual to be confronted is EPA head Scott Pruitt, who was approached by a citizen that told him he needs to resign. Hi, um, I just wanted to urge you to resign um, because of what you're doing to the environment in our country. This is my son. He loves animals. He loves clean air. He loves clean water. Meanwhile, you're slashing strong fuel standards for cars and trucks for the benefits of big corporations. Uh, you've been paying about 15 bucks a night to say that you see condo that's connected to an energy lobbying while approving their dirty sands pipeline. Um, we deserve to have somebody at the EPA who actually does protect our environment, somebody who believes in climate change and takes it seriously for the benefit of all of us, including our children. Um, so I would urge you to resign before your scandals push you out. I love that. That was absolutely amazing. Now, after she told him that he needs to resign before one of his scandals pushes him out, there were a few seconds to where she just looked right into his soul. And you can tell that he probably died a little inside there because he was so uncomfortable. And in fact, he was so uncomfortable that as soon as she, or actually before she could even get back to her table, she says that him and his cronies fled. If you hold them to even the most minimal amount of scrutiny, well, under any pressure, they fold because they don't want to face the public because deep down they know that what they're doing is harmful and they don't want to be confronted by their victims because maybe it reminds them just how shitty of people they are. Now, Scott Pruitt wasn't the only Republican thug that was confronted by civilians this week because Mitch McConnell was also confronted by individuals who just aren't happy with the administration's zero-tolerance policy. And uh, this is what they had to say. Now, I love that as well. <laughs> and the the response from Mitch McConnell's wife was amazing because uh, you could tell she was just so angry. Like, how dare these peasants confront my husband, who is the Senate Majority Leader? Lady, your husband is an asshole who's ruined countless lives, and you're also complicit in that because you actually work for Donald Trump's administration. Now, is it the case that Mitch McConnell is not directly responsible for Donald Trump's zero-tolerance policy? Of course, because it's Donald Trump who directed his Department of Justice to carry out this zero-tolerance policy. However, with that being said, Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader. He's in a uniquely powerful position to actually stop this if he wanted to. But he's not. He's complicit with it. He can get enough votes from his caucus to do a more humane form of immigration or, you know, implement a policy that wouldn't destroy families or wouldn't put people in cages. But he likes doing it. These people are disgusting. It's not just that they're corrupt like the Democratic Party. 
These are people who are sociopaths. They don't care about human suffering. They have no empathy whatsoever. So, I love that, you know, citizens all over this country are still confronting public officials and Republicans. They deserve it. I mean, I get that some people feel uncomfortable with, you know, confronting people, you know, in their private lives. But look, if they're not going to listen, this is a very effective way to get their attention. They don't like being disturbed when they're off the clock, when they're private citizens. But the fact remains that they're implementing policies that are ruining the planet, ruining the economy, fucking up people's lives, literally. So we're not just going to, you know, give you a pass if you're out with your family at a restaurant. No, we're going to confront you. And this is going to continue to happen until you start representing the people. But we all know that that's that's unfathomable for the Republican Party. They've just got to collapse. It's time for Democrats to be the new right-wing party and for a new left-wing progressive party to emerge. Because when you compare the Republican Party to other right-wing parties in Europe, for example... Well, they're more akin to these fringe right-wing extremist parties who are xenophobic, who are nationalistic than mainstream conservative parties in Europe. They're not like Christian Democrats. That's absurd. This party is too far gone. They can't be redeemed. They're past redemption, in fact, and they've just got to collapse. Well, if you've made it this far in the episode, thank you so much for watching the Humanist Report podcast. To everyone that I met at the Jimmy Dore show this last weekend, live at the Alberta Rose Theater, thank you so much for coming out. It was an absolute blast. Um, and before we end the show, a as usual, I want to send another shout out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. If you'd also like to sign up to support the podcast, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. I'm sorry that this was a relatively shorter episode, but next week we'll be back with a normal sized episode, I think, um, at this point anyways, and I will have congressional candidate Dorothy Gasquet on the program. Hope you guys uh, will enjoy that. So yeah, I'll see you next week. Take care.